Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. I'm Joyce Meskus, the owner of the Tattered Cover Bookstores, and um, well, we are d- delighted to be partnering with the Wincoop Brewing Company tonight for, for this event, there, to the celebration of the launch of this most remarkable book. It's a memoir, we all know that, reflecting on the very human experiences in the life's journey to date of our governor, John Hickenlooper. Filled with joy and disappointment, the pleasures and confusions of youth, the financial challenges of a budding entrepreneur, and myriad decisions incumbent upon an elected official in an important leadership position, all of that and more are documented with wisdom, whimsy, at times breathtaking in its honesty, often quite funny, always unique, thought-provoking, and compelling in style, just like our governor is. The book is written in collaboration with journalist Maximilian Potter, award-winning... of great renown and uh, winning awards galore. Um, Written in collaboration together, obviously, there was a treasure trove of written material available to sort, memory banks to poke, decisions to make as to what to keep or leave out. Max has been busy as author, recently having written Shadows in the Vineyard, and before that was editor and contributing editor at 5280. As for myself, having finished this volume, and now I'm ready for the next one, surely there's more work to be done, more stories to tell that demonstrate the heart, the fortitude, energy, and vision for which this governor is known to establish a legacy that will not only show good stewardship for generations to come, but will offer a model of creative, ethical, and energetic government on which to build the future. Governor John Hickenlooper. So, like those famous, all those South Park characters, I am not worthy... I'm clear. Joyce Meskis, I think, perhaps the greatest entrepreneur we've ever had in in Colorado. And and now I'm going to introduce, uh, uh, the way this is going to work, uh, I'm going to introduce my co-author, and we're each going to, he's going to give a couple minutes of kind of framework. Or do you want me to go first? Oh, I'm going, I'm going to give a couple, intro, a couple minutes of framework. Uh, then he's going to give, give a couple mi- minutes of framework, and then I'm going to read about six pages. Uh, 
Let me just say that this book was written, and I've been talking about reading a book for years and years and years, and Max Potter, when he stepped away from 5280, he said he became our speechwriter, and in the course of a couple of years, he probably knew me better than I know myself. Uh, anyway, I, he, he said, you know, I think you could get you, that book you've always talked about, I think, I think we could get it done. I think we could find a publisher like Penguin Books. And, and somewhere here, Scott Moyers is here. Where'd Scott Moyers go? Our editor. Scott Moyers is back there who, who took the, the plunge with this book. Uh, and, and, and when Max said that, I said, well, I don't think that, we'll see. But anyway, uh, uh, Penguin stepped up. Uh, and Max, if it wasn't for Max Potter, uh, certainly I would have never been pushed into doing this. And Lord knows the the artful structure of the book, the uh, the tone of the book, uh, so much of the book is is his his inspiration, and he knew most of my stories already. Uh, I'm one of those people that never throws anything away. My my wife Robin here, Robin Wave, Robin Hickenlooper. There's a la- the last chapter is really about Robin and and how she is in she is the opposite of woe, right? Uh, anyway. She has noted a couple times that I don't throw things away. And, and we just moved from our house to renovate the house into, into, our manch, into the, the mansion, the governor's mansion. And I have boxes and boxes. I have all the letters that anyone ever wrote to me, Xeroxes of all the letters I wrote to other people. Max read almost all of them, if not all of them. He annotated them, organized them. Uh, he went to extraordinary lengths. Uh, and part of why this book is revealing and embarrassing in many ways is because he pushed me and, and said, no, no, if you're going to write a book like this, it can't be the typical way politicians write books that, so people will like them and support them. It's got to be warts and all. It's got to be everything. And uh, this certainly wouldn't have happened without him. Now, I do want to mention the title. because How many of you understand the title? Have ever heard the story? So about 10%, not that many. Therefore, you have to hear the story. And, and the story, back when I ran for mayor in 2003, was nowhere in the polls uh, and all these young volunteers. I used to tell this story about a professor talking about the importance, up at the University of Wyoming, the importance of using opposites to create emotional impact when you're publicly speaking. You talk about the agony, you talk about the ecstasy. If you talk about the worst of times, you talk about the best of times. She asked the class, what's the opposite of despair? Kid goes, joy? Yes, joy, you creep power by having opposites. Then she asks, what's the opposite of woe? And the kid way in the back goes, giddy up! And, but, the, but the opposite of woe really is giddy up. Uh, and so much of what we saw in public life, so much of what I saw when my mother was widowed twice and raised four kids by herself, the opposite of woe is to giddy up. And my son Teddy is here. Stand up here, Teddy. He's known more than his share of woe in, in, in trying to deal with a father that's pulled in sometimes many different directions and has been so steadfast and loyal. And in many ways, this book really is for him. It's dedicated to him, to him and Robin. So I'm going to turn it over now to uh, Maximilian Potter, uh, who without whom this book would never... You know, I gave him, when he first gave me the draft, I said, well... 
it, it's, he goes, I think, I think I've got your voice. I said, I know my voice and this isn't it. You've got an authentic voice, but it's not mine. If one more of my old best friends who've read this book comes up and tells me, it's your voice. And so I, I had to realize that in the end, it's like when you hear your voice on a, on a recorded tape recorder, it doesn't sound right. But I think he really got it right. And I think that he deserves tremendous credit. Maximilian Potter. So I'm still in therapy after this whole book. Uh, I was in, yeah, I was in therapy before. It just intensified. <clears throat> Two sessions a week as opposed to one. Um, I'm going to keep this short because the story is John's story, uh, as it should be. But all I want to say is that when um, somebody doubles down on you and counts on you, it means a lot. And um, by the time John and I had started to talk about his book, um, we were friends. Um, and I'll be cheesy for a minute. I love the guy. Um, sometimes I want to punch him. Um, and anyone who knows him well knows exactly what I'm talking about. But his heart and mind and soul are just wonderful things, and um, I think we're lucky to have him as a governor for the state. And when we talked about doing this book, um, I, I confess the pressure was um, to honor my friend's story, his son's story, his family's story, his wife's story, and the state's story. And um, I guess what I hope is is that we did that. And uh, I want to say a special thanks, as John did, to our editor, Scott Moyers, who um, kept me sane, which was no easy task. Uh, and I also want to thank uh, my wife, Lori, uh, and our two sons, True and Jack. And um, thank you all for your support. And uh, we have a great governor. And thanks for buying the book. I have two kids to go through private school. So if you want to buy a couple more, that'd be swell. Good. So, two things. I'm going to read uh, a couple passages about when we were starting Wine Coop. Uh, I looked at a bunch of passages, and one thing I did almost read, uh, uh, and I don't know if, did, did, you know, my part of the, a lot of the book is about the fact that my dad died when I was young. as my mother's second husband who died, and you sort of have to invent yourself if, if, a, if you're a boy and don't have a father. And as, as we wrote this book, uh, is your dad, isn't your dad here somewhere? Is, so, where's Max's, Max, Mr. Potter, where's Mr. Potter? Because whenever I talk to Max, he gives credit, where, 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 where? There he is, back there. So you should give a hand for this man, because Max says he would be nothing, would not have been able to do this without his father. And this is, we're about to be in Father's Day, and I think that that's one of those, those moments where you get to appreciate, and, you know, Max would lavish praise on his dad, but it's not as authentic. If I say how much he loves his father, uh, he, he'd have a harder time saying that in front of 500 people. Um, but he does. Uh, also, I want to thank, and I don't know if, if uh, my ex-wife Helen Thorpe is here. So Helen helped with the book and was very generous. I want to thank her. All right, so... I'm, I'm going to read this. Uh, thank you all for coming also. I just want to say the people in this room 
So many of you have been along from the very beginning and cannot thank you enough for all the support. This has been the greatest gift, everyone. If you love kind of... I mean, part of this book is that it is really a call to action for nerds and geeks everywhere that if you want to, you can help. You can get involved and help solve tough problems and work with incredible people and, and make a difference in the world. So this, is, this part is back when we were, we were doing, trying to start the wine coop. This was an empty warehouse. The rent, the rent that Jack Barton, and there's some great descriptions of Jack Barton, our original landlord. Uh, the rent was a dollar a square foot per year. And we could not raise money. I mean, it was, it was a very... No one believed that a brew pub would work. No one believed that retail would succeed in Lodo. And so we were trying to open this thing with almost new money. So all the furniture came from auction houses. All, everything was as, as inexpensive as we could get it, which came naturally, because my mom grew up in the Depression. She sewed all her own clothes, washed tinfoil to reuse it, all that Depression stuff. It felt like we hit every auction on the front range of the Rocky Mountains. We picked up the Cadillac of stoves, hardly used, for half of the $5,000 it would cost off the showroom floor. Cash registers, same deal. The Brown Palace was unloading its plateware to upgrade. I scooped up their gold-rimmed hand-me-downs, formerly fit for a palace, for a pittance. And I want you to, I'm going to read a couple. Think about that. This is the part where Max comes in. Formerly fit for a palace, for a pittance. Max wrote this whole book to be read aloud. <laughs> well, you think it's a difference, but the audio book is my voice, and I read every, the whole thing through, and, and it is written to be aloud, except for the parts that I changed, you, and you can see them. I scored an entire stereo system for a song. Our chairs didn't match, but came at a very good price, though it never occurred to me at the time, Hick, that's what we called my father, Hick would have loved such fruitful treasure hunting. By now, we're in early 1988, and we're planning a July opening. We even took out an ad in the program for the Association of Brewers Conference that would be in Denver. We had hired a great young contractor who believed in us, and even better, his, was 50, his bid was $50,000 below the other two bids. Turned out he could do this because his workers, a salty crew, seemed as likely to take a day off for every day they worked. In reality, with the cheap rent we had, but little money, saving money was more important than the schedule. Which reminds me of the toilets. A friend of mine was rehabbing a 1920s mansion in the swanky Cheeseman Park part of town. My old pal told me that if I removed six toilets, I could have them for $25 each. We're talking about gorgeous old porcelain thrones, a perfect art deco period match to the building. So I'd go over with two newly hired hands to remove toilets. Now, these suckers were bolted onto the floor. Upon closer inspection, I realized the toilets were still full. As in, full of years-old, maybe decades-old dried feces. Have you guys all had dinner? I'm sorry. Apparently, homeless people had squatted in the house. Literally. At $25 a pop for these six beauties, I was undeterred. There, among the flies and maggots, I saw opportunity. The two guys and I spent most of the day unscrewing the rusted bolts and carrying the toilets to a pickup truck. On the way back to the pub, we stopped at an outdoor car wash and set about cleaning the bowls. We put on rubber gloves and with hammers began whacking away at the crust on the waste-caked bowls, breaking it up and then scooping it out. 
Again, just to be clear, that's by hand. In parentheses, in a few years as governor, I would learn that legislative politics on a statewide level can be very similar. You're whacking away at layers of crap to get at something useful. And then, then we, we skip to the opening. I left out some of the other more, more unpleasant things that you wouldn't want to hear. The Denver Post, Dick Kreck, had a widely read man about town gossip column. He immediately said, when this book came out, he sent me an email within two days saying, gossip column? <laughs> he had been stopping in every few weeks. His vanity license plate was Mr. Beer. He loved Russell's beer. That Tuesday we opened, he ended his column with, quote, for the best 25 cent beer in town, check out the grand opening tonight of Colorado's first brew pub. Well, naturally, us being us, we had no idea what to expect. When we opened our doors that afternoon, there was a line around the block. The place was packed from open to close. We had six beers on tap, among them a light Timberline Pale Ale, the St. Charles Extra Special Bitter, a spectacularly pungent Wilderness Wheat beer, and of course, Sagebrush Stout, or as one customer dubbed it, Cup of Mud. The menu offered diet plate classics such as shepherd's pie, fish and chips, gorgonzola ale soup, and various Bockwurst platters. That day at lunch, Mayor Federico Pena, whom none of us had ever met, came early for a brewery tour before cutting our red ribbon. All the TV stations came. We, after all, were the first restaurant of any kind to open downtown in five years. Luckily, the TV cameras all left before our auction scavenged point of sale uh, cash register system melted down and people waited up to an hour for their order to be served. I gave away 45 free lunches that day. Many of the clients were charmed by how hard we were trying and became devoted customers. All night long, the crowd around the bar was five to six people deep. In our kitchen, March, Mark never stopped. He ran low on supplies several times and Jerry made a few runs to the local King Supers to restock. Like all of us, he was frazzled. When you've been working 80 and 90 hour weeks for months on end, your wits tend not to be at their sharpest. Jerry likes to tell the story of going to King Supers that night on a cabbage run. He was checking out and, and his nerves were already on edge. Then the clerk behind the register fell to the floor and went into epileptic spasms. Jerry caught her as she fell and thought, this cannot be happening. Jerry's unspoken but implied point was, just about everyone on staff that night started at least one sentence with, you're never going to believe this. At one point, I saw mom and Bill, my mother and stepfather, standing like islands in a surging sea of young people. I rescued them and took them into a side room where you could hear yourself think. Bill looked dazed but happy. Mom's eyes were twinkling like, well, like the day she married Bill. As you all know, mom didn't get excited often. She put both both hands on my forearms and pulled me to her and said, you did it. Her voice was soft. She said it again, you really did it. I was sure she was about to tell me how proud she was, but then Jerry's wife, Martha, came in to find us and tell us there was a crush and we were swept back into that wonderful maelstrom of energy.
So I left out all the, the parts where I screw up and make a fool of myself, but they're in here. I, I promise you that. Uh, we have an agreement with the, the folks living upstairs that we keep the recorded the part of any program here to 15 minutes. So you are now free to move around the cabin. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for your support. I'll be over there t signing books. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Fode, and we have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.